Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we'll take time to read the first 11 verses, the whole of the chapter, in fact. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislu, in the twentieth year that I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and to give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Let us just pray before we come to the preaching of God's word. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, again we, we come and we ask for help. We ask help of the Holy Spirit, that Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit will come now amongst us, that it will open up our eyes, that we may be able to see what it would want us to see, what you want us to see, that it will open up our ears, that we will be able to hear what you want us to hear from this message. And Heavenly Father, that you will open up our hearts, that we may do what you want us to do with this, these words that are preached this morning. Because Lord, as we said before, if we don't go out of this place changed, if we don't go out of this place different, then what has been the point? 
Lord, we want to worship you here this morning. We want to praise you. We want to lift up your, your name on high. But Heavenly Father, we want to be built up in Christ as well this morning. So help us with the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Now, about three weeks ago, I was at a church and everything went blank on me. My, um, my uh, tablet, it all froze and everything. And just there, literally now, it's done the exact same thing. So it has. And um, I'm just now trying to find my notes. Um, let us see. It's in a different place, I think. Ah, there we are. Amen. And the rains fell. <laughs> if you're asking me this morning a question, if you're asking me, Joe, what is your favourite Old Testament book? I think if you twisted my arm right up my back, I would say Nehemiah. Probably Nehemiah and Esther. Or not Esther, sorry, Ezra. I think because they record one of the most important things, one of the most important historical acts that happened to, in Jewish history. And that is the return from exile to the promised land. Now Ezra and Nehemiah were originally contained as one volume in the original scriptures. And they continued on the story from Chronicles. And we see that in the book of Nehemiah, the first six chapters had to do with the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the gates of Jerusalem. And the last seven chapters, if you were to read those, it's about the instruction or the reinstruction of God's people, the retraining of God's people. So some 14 years after the Reformation under Ezra, God raises up a man, a man for that hour, a man who has been prepared for that particular time, a man called by God, prepared for the task that is in the hand in front of him. And he is called to serve the Lord. And in the first few chapters, in fact, in the first chapter, we see the preparation and that call of that man. And we could learn many lessons this morning from Nehemiah. There are many things that we could take from this particular portion of Scripture. The main part is the prayer of Nehemiah from verse 4 to 11. But I'm not going to look at that this morning. I'm going to look at the burden that is placed upon Nehemiah. As I said, we can learn many things from Nehemiah. The determination he has in the face of opposition when he's building the walls. How he stood firm, how he had a, a trial in one hand and a spear in the other. How he's unyielding to the opposition of sin. He was a man of prayer. This particular chapter and another one later on, we see Nehemiah as a man of prayer. He was a man full of wisdom. He was a man who loved God's word. Just read chapter 8 with him and Ezra. He was a great leader. And sometimes this can be overlooked because when you read the Old Testament or think of the Old Testament, you're thinking of David. You're thinking of Moses. You're thinking of Joshua. And quite often Nehemiah is overlooked. But he was a great leader. He led his people. But as I said earlier on, Nehemiah was a man with a burden. And if you want to give this sermon a title, it would be A Builder with a Burden. So we're going to look at two points very briefly this morning. 
that this burden was real and this burden required work. In, first, in this first chapter, in verse 3, we see that the walls of Jerusalem, they're broken down. The gates of this once great city are in ashes. They've been burnt down. The remnant are in trouble. They're in great trouble and they're put to shame. And Nehemiah saw this. He saw this situation that the remnant were in. Now he didn't see this physically with his own eyes. No, of course not. Not at this point. But he had been made aware of this. And these were God's people. These were his people. They were in great shame and distress and in trouble. So when he hears this, this brings about this burden on his heart. Look at verse 4. It says this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a burden. A burden to rebuild the walls. Now this burden wasn't brief. Let me tell you that. It wasn't superficial. It wasn't a, a flash in the pan as it were. It wasn't here one moment and then gone later on the, the same day. This was real and this was credible burden that was laid upon his heart. Four months had passed between the end of chapter 1 and the, the beginning of chapter 2. And I think when you read Nehemiah as a whole, you can safely say for those four months between first hearing of the trouble in Jerusalem and then going to king, the king, for those four months, that burden didn't leave him. He lamented over the walls and the state of his brethren in Jerusalem. All this time, I think we can safely say that he was walking and he was talking with his God. And this burden lay heavy upon his heart. He could envisage the state of the Jewish people, the state of the city of Jerusalem, what it was like, what it was in, the broken walls, the gates, these massive gates that are all now burnt down, a city without protection, a city that was probably mocked now by outsiders who possibly remembered or, or heard the great stories of what this wonderful city used to be like. And now look at it. Where's their God now? Look at the state that it's in. Although this description was brief, it certainly made an impact on Nehemiah and his life. It spoke volumes to him. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also was broken down and its gates are burned with fire. This once great nation was now referred to as part of a province. The Jewish remnant were reviled. They were in great affliction. They were in great distress. They were in trouble. And we could ask this morning, has anything really changed in those two and a half thousand years? Our own politicians are anti-Israel. The UN passes resolutions against Israel seemingly on a daily basis. They're still reviled. They're still in trouble. Now, I'm not making excuses for everything and anything that Israel does. But certainly if there's a nation on this earth that is in trouble and reviled and constantly reviled, it certainly is Israel. 
You know, and this burden that Nehemiah found within himself burned deep within himself. It wouldn't go away. He couldn't just dampen it. It stayed with him. And as I said at the beginning of verse 4, as soon as he heard this report, as soon as he heard this report, the first thing he did was weep. He wept over the city. He wept over the people because of the distress that they were in. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and it's probably one that you've heard many times before, and you probably already know what it is before I ask it now. And because we've heard it so many times before, it's probably going to, it, it, it tends to wipe over our heads. It, it flashes over our heads. When was the last time we wept over something? I mean, really wept. Now, I don't mean something that was sentimental. I have a brother-in-law in Canada who's very sentimental. And the joke is that he would cry at even at the opening of a, a shopping mall. He's that sentimental. I don't mean that kind of thing. I don't even mean weeping at some bad news that you get, maybe over illness. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But when was the last time you or I wept over something that was spiritual? A spiritual burden that we had burning within our lives. Do we have a burden even? Do we have a spiritual burden this morning? If we don't, we should have. Unsafe family members, do we weep over them? Do we, do we weep over Boness? Do we weep over Scotland? Do we weep over our own churches in this land? You know, I've said it many times from a pulpit that the church is a forgotten mission field. There are many in our churches who sit in week in and week out who are not saved. They're just religious. It's a tradition to them. It's a habit to them. Sunday morning, Sunday evening. It's a bit like Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. When he comes to Christ by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This man who was religious, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Christ called him the teacher of Israel. Not just that teacher. The teacher of Israel. So this man would have known the scriptures that they had at that time. He would have had all the right language at that time. You could have asked him a question and he would have an answer like that. He would have even looked the part. But he didn't know he needed to be born again. He knew much. But he didn't know the most important thing. And that was without Christ, without turning from our sins. All he had was religion. And if that's all we have this morning, if that's all we are sitting with this morning, then I'm afraid that will damn us to hell. And there are many people like that up and down our country. Up and down even this morning in this land. They're dressed right. They have their Bible with them. They're singing away and nodding all in the right places. But you know, it's not just in the church. Since coming back to Scotland, the amount of people that I have met who say that they are a Christian, but have, they don't want to have anything to do with the local church because the local church has hurt them sometime in the past. And that astonishes me. 
Staying out of the church isn't going to unhurt them, is it? No, of course it's not. You know? And I just can't believe this. And there's no doubt some of these people are saved. Absolutely. But I will tell you now, the vast majority of these people are full of religion. And if that's what they have, if they just have their religion, they don't have Christ and don't have trust in Christ and what Christ has done upon the cross for them, then I'm afraid (coughs) if they die in that, they will end up in eternal hell. We need to have a burden for the church in Scotland today. But also notice that Nehemiah's burden was obvious and it was clear. Look at the beginning of chapter 2 with me. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that he took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in, the presence, in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Even the ungodly king could see that Nehemiah had a burden. Or at least he knew there was something wrong. There was something eating away at Nehemiah. Something was troubling him. Something was laying heavy upon his heart. Now the position that Nehemiah found himself in, being the king's cupbearer, was a privileged one. And it wasn't just being a butler. Some of the commentators will tell you that. It was just really he was a butler to the king. But it was much more than that. He was in the daily presence of the king. He tasted the wine before the king drank it, pouring some into his hand and then tasting it to make sure there was no poison. But he had to prove himself to that king. That's why he got into that position. He would have made, this would have made his life very comfortable, in fact, being the king's cupbearer. It would have given him a good wage, a good standard of living. And he would have been seen by the king as someone who was wise, someone who was skillful, and someone who became the king's confidant. That's much more than a butler. He had the ear of the king. In many ways, a bit like Daniel. Daniel held a position of enormous responsibility, one of enormous trust, just like Nehemiah. And like the pair of them, neither of them compromised their faith in God. They both had an unwavering commitment to God. Now, the position, as I said, was a good position. It was very hard to get out get into but it was hard to get out of as well and one way he could have got out of that was by appearing before the king sad, sullen faced unhappy sad in his demeanour because this back then was punishable by death if he went before the king looking like this here he could have been executed the people of that day couldn't see Why? Anybody could come into the presence of their king and be sad and be sullen-faced. It would be like Ian getting 
and going down to the Queen and standing before the Queen, getting an MBE and being sullen-faced and really sad, not wanting to be there. He would look at you and think, well, wait, what? what's wrong with you? You're in front of the Queen. And this is the exact same here with Nehemiah. The people could not understand why anybody would go into the presence of their living king and be sad. And maybe this is why he says at the end of verse 2 in chapter 2, so I became dreadfully afraid. He knew with his demeanor and his burden that he had upon his heart, going into the presence of the king was a dangerous thing. You know, I believe this. the, the scripture teaches us that this burden that Nehemiah had was genuine. And if there is a genuine burden within each and every one of us, the people will see it. They will see it in our lives and every aspect of our lives. Our daily walk with God, our prayers and our prayer life will reflect that burden that the Lord has placed upon us. The way we talk to each other on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening will reflect that burden that we have within our lives. I would even go as far as saying that the ungodly, even in bonus, would see a burden within our lives. A bit like King Artaxerxes. Maybe they mightn't see it as a burden. They mightn't know that that's what it is. But certainly they will know there's something different. So his, his burden wasn't just superficial. His burden was also obvious. But I also want you to know something else about this burden. Chapter 2 and verse 12 says this. When I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Now, did you see that? And this is not the only time that Nehemiah uses this phrase. The burden that Nehemiah had was a burden put there by God. Yes, God uses the circumstances that he finds himself in and the circumstances that Jerusalem and the nation find themselves in, but God puts it there. It's a God-made burden. A sovereign God placed it there. And he placed him in a position just for this time. Now, we need to be careful. Not... That just because we see a need doesn't mean that we are called to meet that need. Many times we are. Certainly. There are many times when we see something. But sometimes, you know, we hide behind prayer. Now, take, bear with what I'm saying here. Sometimes we hide behind prayer and sometimes we hide behind the Bible. Because we see a need. And we know we should be doing something. But we say, right, I'll pray about that first. When you know already that you should be doing something about that. We hide behind prayer. We say, I'll wait till the Lord speaks to me. I'll wait till the Lord tells me something in his word before I go and do something. But it has to be a burden placed in our hearts by God. It can't be a man-made burden. And as I've asked before, do we have a burden This morning do we have a burden. If we don't, I pray that God will give us one. 
One that we can't quench. One that we can't put out. You know, we may have had a burden in the past. I've heard so many times of people having burdens in the past, but now it's just smoldering. It's almost out. I pray that God, our God, will ignite that once more within our hearts. And that God will use this burden that he gives us. Whatever it is for, maybe it is for family members. Maybe it's for the church. Maybe it's for this district. But I pray that the Lord will reignite that burden in our hearts. And very quickly, the second point. This burden required work. We have three teenagers, two boys. And you say that word work, they kind of like recoil a wee bit, so they do. They don't like that word at all. But you know, this burden required work. There was a work at rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And we shouldn't underestimate this task that was in front of him. This was a massive undertaking. And I'm sure at times it would have been discouraging for them. The enemies had terrified the people. There was threat of deadly attack on every corner when they were building these walls. And those who came in from the villages to help with the building of the walls and and to work on their walls had their families come in and try and persuade them to leave. Come home to safety. You're not safe here. You're not safe doing this work. So when Nehemiah was building these walls, he had opposition. There was an obstruction and hostility to the work of God. Up until chapter 6, I think we can say that the opposition had been aimed generally, generally at those who were building the wall. The workers, which included Nehemiah at that time as well. So they would have faced intimidation, there would have been fear, And they would have used fear as a weapon to try and stop them from building the walls. But then after chapter 6, we see these attacks become more personal. They become central on Nehemiah himself. Now these boys are not prepared to give up. Their previous attempts to try and stop the building of the walls had all but failed. The building of the walls had finished. It just took 52 days to build the walls around Jerusalem. Everything was in course, almost ready, just the gates to hang. But now they were out to get Nehemiah himself. That's who they were targeting. They were out to humble him. They were out to put him in his place. This time it was personal. In chapter 6 and verse 2 it says this, Sambala and Geshem sent, said to me, or sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecafir, Hecafirim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. They were coming to kill him. They wanted him to come to the plain of Ono and to kill him, to do him harm. Verse 10 goes on to say that this was actually their plan. That's what they wanted to do. Now we all know when we do any kind of work for the Lord, when we're involved in the work for the Lord, we will all face opposition. Maybe not death threats here in Scotland, but we will face opposition. And it comes from so many people so often. David in his psalm tells us, Lord, how many are my foes? 
How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Many. You know, whether it's we're on our own or in an organization, whether that organization is big or whether it's small, the opposition will come. And we need to be ready to engage that opposition. As I said, with a trial in one hand and a sword or a spear in the other, or God's word in the other. Sometimes opposition comes from the unchurched, the non-Christians that maybe we encounter in the streets as we go round, maybe door-to-door work. You know, that opposition may come because they're offended by, of what we say to them. What we do, what our actions are. We tell them that they are sinners. Their lifestyle is contrary to the scriptures. So they're living in sin. And then if we quote scripture to back that up, they call the police and say it's a hate crime. But sadly, sometimes the opposition comes from Christians. But in the Christian world, maybe it's because they feel threatened. Threatened by what you're doing for the Lord. So that they may feel excluded. Or it could be just good old fashioned jealousy sometimes. They may stand to lose a position in the church. They may stand that their influence in the church may dwindle. Their voice may not be listened to anymore because of what you're doing for the Lord. Maybe their opposition is because you're doing something new and different. And they say, we've always done it this way. This is the only way we do it. And I came face to face with that about a month ago. I won't say where, but one of the main men said, we we can't do that like this. It won't work here. But what they were doing wasn't working because their church is dying. You know, today we need to be relevant to the culture, the culture that we are in. But you know, to be relevant, quite often people think that we have to compromise to be relevant. We never do that. We never compromise God's word to be relevant. But you know, no matter how relevant we are, no matter how hip your pastor is with his skinny jeans or whatever he is, okay, the world will be out to do us harm. No matter how relevant we are. Matthew 10.22 says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This hatred will come because we are followers of Christ. Affliction and death will come upon us because we follow Christ. And these things are all a sign of the, the age that we live in. These people will hate Christians. They will hate the godliness of a Christian. They will hate the purity of a Christian. They will hate the justice of a Christian. They will hate the Christian's self-denial. Because it shines a light into their sinful life. And again, another question. Are we living lives like that today? Have we a godly life? Is our life pure? Is our life life just? Is our life full of self-denial? For Christ. 
They also hate us because of our message. The message that man and woman need to repent. Later on in chapter 6, we see that Nehemiah's opposition was continuous. When you're doing for a work for the Lord, the devil and his minions won't just attack once and then give up because you put up a good fight. They're not going to do it just, oh well, he's, he's tougher than you thought, turn and then flee. He won't come up and shake your hand and say, good job, well played, and then move on to someone else. Of course he's not going to do that. He's going to keep coming back. He's going to keep coming back. To, destroy, to try and destroy your ministry and to destroy, and destroy the burden that you have. And a great example of that is the temptation of Christ. When the devil kept coming back and kept coming back to tempt Christ. And how did Christ counteract that? With God's word. That needs to be in our heart. So we can attack our Stand against the wiles of the devil. Then in chapter 3, I'll quickly move on. We see the record record of the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And two things we need to note. That the entire population responded. Each did the job that they were required to do. They had their own jobs. They weren't envious or jealous of anybody else getting another bit to do. It wasn't a case of, well, that one's got a better job than I have. I want that. I'm more qualified for that. No. They were happy and content with the work that they were called to do. Each and every part of the wall was repaired. Granted, in verse 5, we see that some of the nobles wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. And there's always someone like that, isn't there? Too wise, too important. To do some kind of hard work for the Lord. Getting their hands dirty is beneath them almost. And we all probably know someone like that. Maybe you've got someone in your head right now. But it didn't stop the work. It continued. And another thing we see. That they repaired opposite their own house. Repaired opposite their own home. Their own chambers. These men didn't say, well, wait a minute, the wall's broken down over here to the west. Let's go and fix that first. No, no, no. They knew that that wall had to be fixed on the other side of the city. But they also knew that the work had to be done at home, first of all. You know, sometimes we think that being a missionary is going to Papua New Guinea or South America or Eastern Eastern Europe. But quite often it's right outside our front door. In fact, many times it's inside our front door. It's in our churches. It's in our homes. And you know, sometimes God calls us to stay put, not to move. He calls you to stay where you already are to do his work. I said last week, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, when I was taking a wee course, that the Christian has two mission fields, just two. Inside the church and outside the church. But sometimes, you know, God just calls you to stay where you are to do his work. 
Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But where did the apostles start? In Jerusalem where they were. That's where it started. But also the rubbish, or sorry, also this work that Nehemiah was involved in, they had to get rid of the rubbish. They had to get rid of the debris. Chapter 4 verse 10 says this, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build a wall. For any wall to stand, for any building to stand, it needs to have a sure and strong, firm foundation. If the walls of Jerusalem were built upon this rubbish, upon this debris, no sooner would they be up than they would all come crashing right back down again. And Nehemiah knew this. It would be essential to get rid of the debris, to get rid of the rubbish, to get rid of the rubble before the building could be completed. All needed to be cleared away. And when this was done, then the walls and the gates would stand firm. And that's the same for us this morning. If our foundations are filled with rubbish and not built upon Christ, then we labor in vain. Do we not? But you know, no matter where we are, no matter what time we're in, there's always those in churches who will try and justify the heap of rubbish no matter how unpleasant or nasty or disagreeable that rubbish is. And how contrary to the scripture that rubbish is. They will excuse it. They say, what harm will it do? <coughs> We're moving with the times. We're only keeping up with the culture that's round about us. We're being relevant to the culture round about us. But let us not just think about the rubbish in the church. But what about the rubbish that's in our hearts? The rubble, the debris. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, if we were to deal with the heaps of rubbish that's in our lives, we'd probably wake up tomorrow morning and that heap would be back again. So what do we do? What do we do with all this rubbish? Because there is rubbish there. We need to get rid of it. And we need to get rid of it because our Christian lives will suffer. Our witness for God will suffer. Our burden for God will suffer. Our prayer life will suffer. The work of the church will suffer. The reading of God's word will suffer. These things will not be preeminent in our lives the way they should be. And this is one of the themes that we find in the book of Nehemiah. The necessity and the need for prayer. As I said, verses 4 to 11 is, is, is prayer. It's important in the life of any believer. And so is the centrality of God's word. The study of God's word. Prayer and God's word. Do you remember that old course? Read your Bible, pray every day. How true are those words? We laugh at them almost now because they're so old-fashioned. But there's a wonderful truth about it. Read your Bible, pray every day, if you want to grow. You know, Nehemiah this morning should be a great comfort to us all. He was committed to God's work in the face of opposition 
Are we? Are we this morning? Are we committed to God's work? Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, prayer times. Are we prepared to rebuild the walls? To revitalize his church and the work that that involves? And if we do, you know, we don't get the glory. God gets the glory. And that should be the only incentive that we need to do a work for God because it glorifies our King. How did Nehemiah stand strong in the midst of this? Through the strength that God gave him. And again, where did he get that? Through prayer and through his word. One of my favorite phrases in Nehemiah is, Oh God, strengthen my hands. Oh God, strengthen my hands. Even the strongest man or the strongest woman here this morning will face times of temptation and of weakness. But when we're in the midst of those, we need to call upon our God. Call upon our Lord. You know, the opposition will come. It'll come in all shapes and sizes, all forms. (coughs) And the devil will try and ruin the work that you're doing. He may even, even try and ruin you the worker. But may we be like Nehemiah this morning. Men and women of the book. Men and women of prayer. And may the Lord be gracious to us and strengthen our hands this morning for the work that he has. The work that he has called us to do. And if you don't have a burden this morning, I would pray that you would go home today and pray for a burden. You know you have one. You know there's something there you should have a burden for. Go home to <coughs> and pray for that burden. And the Lord will strengthen your hand. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is Hear the Call of the Kingdom. And again, standing to sing as we sing his words. <coughs>